turn to Romans chapter 1. This message is more apologetical, defense of the, the truth of Scripture and the existence of God than anything else. I was sort of prompted to do this. I was looking through some things this week, and I saw a picture that reminded me of the atheist bus campaign. I don't know if any of you remember this or read about it at the time. This was an advertising campaign in 2008, 2009. It was started by the self-proclaimed atheist Richard Dawkins and a British comedy writer named uh, Ariane Shireen, and they plastered the sides of London buses with these large banners that had the slogan, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And so buses all over London conveyed that message. I'm kind of stymied by that word, probably, (laughs) because if you thought If you called yourself an atheist, but you have to say probably because you think there's a a possibility somewhere that there is a righteous creator who may hold you accountable at the end of your life, would you be able to stop worrying and enjoy your life? And you didn't know for sure, or you claimed you didn't know for sure? But I'm thankful that they candidly admit that it's a probability. By using that word they tacitly acknowledge that they aren't really atheists at all. At best, they're agnostic. But in reality, according to Scripture, they're fools. And what they're promoting is foolishness. Psalm 14.1, the wicked fool says in his heart, there is no God. And they aren't really even agnostics either because they do know that God exists. They do know that. Scripture's clear on that as well. They suppress that knowledge, and they deceive themselves, so they may think they don't know, but the truth is they do know there's a God. And in short, that because they have deceived themselves, they are living a lie. Keep that in mind, because whenever someone tells you, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, you should answer them the way I do. I always say, well, I don't believe in atheists. <laughs> and I don't mean that as mere sarcasm, because one of my Biblical and theological convictions is that true atheists simply do not exist. Everyone knows full well that there is a God and that ultimately we are going to have to give an account to Him for how we have lived our lives. And this is a truth that is as certain and as inescapable as death itself. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. And Romans 14, 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And that knowledge is innate in every human soul. It's built into us, and it's punctuated and underscored by the glory that we see in all of creation. All of that is made very clear by two verses in Romans chapter 1, and that text in Romans 1 is where I want to take you this morning. I think I already told you to turn there, So, but before we get into it, I want to actually begin with Genesis 1-1. You don't have to turn there, but Genesis 1-1, where creation is first mentioned and summarized for us in a single verse, and in fact, you probably know Genesis 1-1 by heart, so you you don't need to turn to it. But listen as I read it, and, and think with me about some of the implications that are built into the very first verse of Scripture, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. 
I recently listened to a message by A.W. Tozer, a recording of one of his sermons in which he said that he thinks is the most important verse in all of Scripture, even surpassing John 3.16. Now, something in me kind of recoils from trying to rank the relative importance of key Bible verses because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. But of course, Tozer believed that too, as strongly as I do. So I think I understand what he meant when he ranked Genesis 1-1 as the Bible's most important text, he's saying this is the necessary starting point and the foundation for everything else the Bible has to say. On Twitter a few weeks ago, Tom Askell posted a thread of comments about Genesis 1-1. He called it the most subversive verse in the entire Scriptures. And he pointed out that one of the implications of that verse is that the universe belongs to God. He made it, and, and he therefore gets to make the rules. There is no text in all the Bible that contains more or explains more than Genesis 1.1. Literally, think about it, literally everything is in that verse, everything. Everything you can see Everything in existence that you can't see and everything that ever was or ever will be is encompassed in Genesis 1.1. Carl Sagan, you know, famously opened his television broadcasts by declaring he, he was the guy on the original, was it Cosmos, at one of those public broadcasting things, and he, and he had a weekly program and he would open it every week by saying the universe itself is all that is or ever was or ever will be, which is a fair summary of atheistic materialism, which is what his worldview was. And it is refuted and corrected in a very pithy way by Genesis 1.1, because here in Genesis 1.1, both materialism and atheism are answered in the fewest possible words without any discussion and without any polemics. And that's an important point to notice. Scripture is not putting up a theory for debate. The Bible is not making an argument here. The text simply declares that God alone is eternal, and He is the creator of everything else that is or ever was or ever will be, and it states those truths as brute facts, not as hypotheses looking for proofs. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You either believe that or you don't. And Moses here, as he wrote this down, was not trying to start a dialogue about whether it's true or not. He wasn't proposing a premise to be modified by the dialectical process. And so I'm not going to argue the point either, but here's what I want to stress before we get to our text in Romans 1, and that is that in this brilliant economy of words, Genesis 1-1 gives us a clear and stable starting point from which to look for all the answers to all of the great metaphysical questions that any of us ever wonders about. Like, where did everything come from? What does it all mean? A a true understanding of everything you find mysterious and incomprehensible begins right here in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the starting point and literally the opening line of the story of the universe. It's also the introduction to Act 1 of the drama of redemption, but its implications are even more far-reaching than that. Everything we believe about anything is grounded right here. 
because this text lays the necessary foundation for a truly biblical worldview. If you don't believe Genesis 1-1, you cannot come to a, a thoroughly biblical worldview. This text is telling us an essential truth, and it's the very first of all the inspired biblical dogmas. In other words, this is the the vital starting point of all truth. You do away with the truth that God created everything out of nothing, and whatever theory on the meaning of life and the universe you come up with after that is not only going to be unbiblical, your worldview that you end up with will also be irrational or fanciful or incomplete or internally inconsistent or devoid of any moral absolutes or otherwise lacking somehow in both coherence and integrity. You cannot come to a viable worldview if you eliminate the truth of Genesis 1.1. You simply cannot construct a logical, comprehensive, intellectually defensible understanding of life and reality without knowing where we came from and why. For example, if you don't know something as basic as where intelligence comes from, how could you ever know that you actually know anything? How could you be certain of the true meaning of anything? If you reject the idea of an intelligent creator as the source of all true knowledge, you can't intelligently explain intelligence. And if you don't know where human intelligence comes from, if you have no clue how we might gain true knowledge of the very first principles of our own existence, then you really have no way to account for anything else that you think you know or perceive. And, and that means you ultimately cannot know anything for sure. Postmodern thinkers have figured that out, and basically they embrace the consequences. It's why our world is so confused and so confusing today. Postmodernists recognize that the minute you remove creation and an all-wise creator from the bottom row of your intellectual Jenga stack, everything else that rests on that foundation collapses. You can't really have a, a clear, coherent, consistent worldview if you can't even figure out where the world came from, right? If you don't know how the universe started, then your worldview is, by definition, grossly deficient from the very outset. You have, you have no answers for life's most basic questions. How could you ever truly be certain about anything? And the answer is, you can't. And that is why, starting in secular culture and the secular academic world, and we've talked about this before, certainty and settled knowledge, these things are practically regarded today as the outmoded relics of a naive and overconfident past. The, the, some of the, the leading thinkers in the world today think it's, it's fine to acknowledge that we can't really know anything for sure. They're comfortable with that. Open skepticism is now praised as a new kind of humility, and that makes perfect sense from a postmodern perspective, because to imagine that you know something for sure, or to declare that anything is objectively true when you lack the necessary foundation for any kind of knowledge, to say you know something then would take the worst kind of arrogance, wouldn't it? it if it takes humility to confess that you don't know something, then it's the very essence of humility to confess that you really aren't sure of anything. 
And by that same value system, love means never having to say that anyone else's point of view is wrong. And that's why today, even on Twitter, while people talk about showing love and showing love to your neighbor, what they're saying is you should never tell him that his point of view is wrong. To do that is considered cruel and harsh and even violent. That's the currently dominant value system in so much of our culture. Skepticism and liberal tolerance seen through the postmodern lens becomes humility and love, but it's not. That's an irrational value system because if you start with the premise that there is no God, it's not possible to justify the belief that humility and love are inherently better than the alternatives. Once you eliminate God from your thoughts, what would ever make you think modesty is better than arrogance or that sacrificial love is morally superior to larceny? Many atheists would tell you, well, we do believe in morality, we do believe it's better to be humble than egotistical, and it's more noble to share than to steal, but atheism doesn't furnish any kind of rational ground for that kind of moral hierarchy. You can't justify it as an atheist. In a system where good and bad are defined by the survival of the fittest, raw reason would suggest that vulnerability would be the evil of evils. And virtues like love and humility and meekness and long-suffering, these belong to the biblical worldview. You can't really justify those if you start out by saying, I don't believe in God. Skeptics who believe humility and, and its fruits are virtuous, they have simply borrowed values from the very faith that they disavow, and inevitably, they twist those values out of shape and opt instead for counterfeit love and a false humility. If you give up belief in an intelligent creator, then every moral, spiritual, intellectual fact you think you know suddenly loses its clarity under a murky cloud of perpetual uncertainty. And that is where most of the world lives today. You simply can't know anything for sure with settled conviction, and you can't have any kind of fixed objective moral standards Everything becomes hopelessly relative. And yet, notice the world around us, with the full knowledge that those are the consequences, fallen human minds are still determined to reject God and suppress the truth about Him. Which is one of the points we're going to see in Romans 1, but also Romans 8, verse 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. Unregenerate people hate the God who reveals Himself in creation and in Scripture. And so, even though the devoted postmodernist realizes that his skepticism undermines and will ultimately collapse his entire moral framework and his fundamental understanding of the universe, he refuses to set aside his unbelief, and he refuses to affirm the necessity of an intelligent Creator And instead, he repudiates the possibility of an orderly and comprehensive worldview. He doesn't care that what he believes makes no sense. And that's why meaning has become so elusive in these postmodern times and in postmodern discourse. Definitions change constantly in order to accommodate whatever narrative is currently popular. So now, think this through with me one more time, and I'll say it in the simplest way I know. The skeptic looks at the question of how everything came from nothing 
And he tells himself, that is a question that cannot be answered. But if you have no explanation for how anything came into existence, then quite literally what you're saying is, you don't know the first thing about anything. I mean, that is literally what you're saying. I don't know how anything came into existence. Well, that would be the first thing about everything, and you don't know it. So you don't know the first thing about anything. That is the high cost of skepticism. Eliminate God from your knowledge, and you basically give up knowledge altogether. You forfeit the possibility of being certain about anything. And as I said, the postmodern mind has essentially accepted the consequences of that, and that is why uncertainty has become the defining characteristic of postmodern thought. Postmodernists are pretty certain that certainty is an impossibility, and so they reject all of the necessary tools of intelligent discourse, clarity, it's out, specificity, you can't be that way, non-contradiction, doesn't matter if things contradict, fixed definitions, we don't need them, objective facts, nobody really knows any for sure, and so ultimately even settled knowledge itself is out of the question. Those things are simply impossible concepts for postmodern people to embrace. And so the postmodernist says, nobody can really know for certain the true meaning of anything. Nobody can say for certain that anything even has true meaning, because the postmodern mind has rejected the very foundation of understanding from the very get-go, and the only option left is irrationality and infinite relativism. And that is an option that sober and sane minds used to reject, even the Atheistic philosophers would reject that idea because they didn't want to live in a, in a realm of absolute uncertainty and, and irrationality. But if you give up knowledge, you throw out every hint of certainty, you eliminate all objective truth, you have completely given up the possibility of true meaning, and meaninglessness is a surefire recipe for human despair. This is a suicidal path in many ways. So it's no surprise that suicide statistics are high right now. For one thing, if you rule God out at the start and then follow that trail without flinching or compromise or pretending or turning aside, that is a direct path to moral and intellectual nihilism. Eliminate the truth of a creator and the person of the creator from your understanding, and the toll on your character and the damage done to your understanding is too high a price for anyone to pay. So what we believe about the origin of the universe has dramatic practical consequences, not just a theoretical question. The question of where we came from is not a riddle that you can safely set aside like a Sudoku puzzle that was too hard to solve. We are dealing here with one of the fundamental issues of human life and existence, Where did everything come from, and what set it all in motion? Everybody asks that question, and that is the question Genesis 1-1 gives a definitive answer to, because it's such an important question, that's where the Bible starts, and it has profound implications and far-reaching consequences, so the answer the Bible gives is not at all complex. This is not deeply philosophical. It's not hard to understand. This is the very essence of simplicity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And one other thing, by way of introduction, before we turn to Romans 1, and and I promise you I'll get there, that question, 
Where did everything come from, and what set it all in motion? That is not a conundrum that can be untangled using human reason alone, or intuition, or philosophy, or dialectics. You won't get to the answer with any of those things. God had to reveal the answer, because the answer to that question doesn't lie within us. It's also not a question that can be settled by natural science, because science deals with observable and repeatable, demonstrated phenomena that can be tested and measured and verified. By definition, creation, creation ex nihilo, we call it, that is, begetting everything out of nothing. Creation is is not one of those activities that you can experiment with. Obviously, astrophysicists and cosmologists and geologists and theoretical physicists and other scientific types talk about this issue, and they acknowledge the difficulty of it, and they put forth various theories about big bangs and dark energy and endless cycles of existence or, or whatever. And one thing all of the currently popular academic theories have in common is the idea that creation must have occurred spontaneously, without any concept of God, without any intelligent designer. But the truth is, none of those theories could ever be proved by the scientific method because there is no way to recreate the process. Plus, the whole idea of random, serendipitous creation is totally fanciful. This is not a scientific belief. It's a religious one or an anti-religious one, but it's still a spiritual decision that people make and hold by faith. That should be obvious on the face of things. Life doesn't generate itself spontaneously. And it also needs to be said that the issue of origins is not answered, even theoretically, by evolution. Evolution posits gradual changes between species. It doesn't even address the issue of where everything came from in the first place. Evolution sidesteps that question, and for a very simple reason, because evolution cannot account for the origin of life, much less the origin of matter and motion and energy and the rest of the universe. So where did everything come from? Scripture says our eternal, omnipotent, intelligent God has the power to call things into existence out of nothing. And that is the only account of creation that actually makes sense. He does this out of nothing, just by His Word, and that is how the universe began. In fact, that's the essence of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You try to answer the question, of origins and leave God out of your formula, and you end up with this impossible, irrational idea that nobody plus nothing equals everything. That's the equation you have to accept in order to be an atheist. So atheism is, on the face of it, sheer nonsense. Only a wicked fool says in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 14.1. No matter how many scientists are comfortable with it, And no matter how many academically credentialed geniuses add their amen to it, it's simply not rational to think that this vast, dynamic, orderly universe sprang from nothing with no intelligent architect and for no particular reason. Now, there are people 
who are determined to sustain their disbelief in God, who suggest actually the possibility, because they don't, they don't like that idea that it all came out of nothing, they suggest the possibility that human life was planted on earth by extraterrestrials. You know, intelligent beings from other planets or different dimensions. In fact, I mentioned earlier Carl Sagan, the, the astronomer and astrophysicist who maintained his celebrity status through a television series on PBS. He was devoted, actually, privately to projects that went looking for life elsewhere in the universe. Because he thought maybe the life on Earth was planted by extraterrestrials. Well, I have a question about that. Intelligent life in outer space only pushes the question further out there. Where did your hypothetical space aliens get their start? Who created them? And where did they get their superior intelligence? Any theory about the origin of the universe that eliminates God as creator turns out to be impossible nonsense. We all know this, because without God, you're faced with an impossible question. Where did the original stuff, matter, energy, ectoplasm, whatever you think it was, where did it come from? Or if you think that matter has been here eternally, if time and matter are the ultimate realities, then why isn't everything inert? Because if you think energy is the ultimate reality, what keeps it in constant flux? And how does it produce so much order and so many perfectly designed systems and organisms? The relentless return to those very same questions demonstrates the irrationality of the atheist's position. It is a bottomless pit of infinite regress. On the other hand, The biblical account of creation is simple truth that is revealed, think about this, revealed to us by the one being who actually was present at creation. He is the one true answer to the great cosmic conundrum, and here it is, from the Creator Himself, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's not hard to understand what that says, and it's foolish not to believe it. It's truly a vitally important fact, because without it, nothing makes good rational sense. Now, with all of that in mind, let's do go to Romans 1, and let's talk about some of the vital truths that God has built right into creation. Romans 1, we're going to start at verse 19, but here's some context. Paul has just stated in verse 18 that unrighteousness is the motive that causes fallen people, sinful people, to suppress the truth about God. In our natural fallen state, the only way we can live with our guilt is to deny, that we, to deny what we know in our hearts is true about God, because guilty sinners cannot abide God's wrath against sin, His holiness, or any of His other righteous attributes, and in the end, the determined sinner will simply deny that God even exists, foolishly. The Bible says they know better. Their own consciences bear witness to both their guilt and their God. And furthermore, verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, both His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, that's our text. And notice, the central idea of that text is very simple. 
God plainly reveals himself in his creation. All of creation is simply divine revelation. The universe itself is designed to reveal God and put his glory on display. And furthermore, creation is his most obvious self-revelation. It's not the only one, but it's the most obvious one. In the words of Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Anyone who simply looks at creation should be able to see ample proof that, uh, about God, that he exists, first of all, but other truths about him built into it as well, clearly revealed. Listen to the next few verses from Psalm 19. Creation speaks at all times, the psalmist says, day to day and night to night. It speaks in all languages, verse 3, there is no speech nor are there words, their voice is not heard, so it transcends human language. It speaks to all people, verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances are to the end of the world. So the universe reveals God, this is what that psalm is saying, Psalm 19, the universe reveals God in a way that is always accessible across every language barrier to everyone without exception. There is no excuse for not seeing it. Now, it makes perfect sense that if you reject the most basic and and most conspicuous truth about God that he has revealed about himself, of course you're not going to be able to make good sense of God or of anything else. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches, 1 Corinthians 2.14. A natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. So here's the point I want to zero in on. No matter how popular it may be to object to creation on supposedly scientific grounds, no matter how many great minds in the academic world among the academic elite reject the truth that is so clearly revealed in creation, there is no excuse and no justification for that kind of skepticism. Because creation itself is a brilliant work of divine revelation, God revealing himself. That is why the universe is so vast and awesome, because it's designed to make obvious the immeasurable greatness of the Creator. Creation is God's self-revelation. The truth is right there wherever you look, all around you. So what truths are revealed in creation. What is Paul describing here that's revealed about God? What kind of truth about God, specifically his character, his attributes, the way he works, other points of theology, what truths are spread out for us so that they may be clearly seen, in Paul's words, being understood through what is made? And I see three categories of vital doctrine that are obvious on the face of the visible universe. Here's how I would classify the the three key truths that God has revealed in creation. Number one, in creation we see the magnificent glory of God. Number two, we see the fallen glory of humanity. And number three, we see the awful curse of sin. And so I want to look at those categories one at a time. If you didn't get them down, you will. Number one, we see the magnificent glory of God. That's obvious on the face of it. Scripture says this is obvious. That which is known about God is evident. Which doesn't mean, of course, that everything you could possibly know about God is revealed in nature. I'm not saying that. I'm not suggesting that natural theology is a sufficient path to the true knowledge of God and salvation. 
Because you, you would never, say, discern the truth of the Trinity or the incarnation and mediatorial work of Christ simply by looking at nature. Those truths aren't necessarily clear in nature. Some of the truth we need to know about God must be taught to us by special revelation, and that's what the Scriptures are for. But the stress here, what Paul is saying in Romans 1, the stress is on the clarity of the revelation that is given to us in creation. To paraphrase, that which is known about God is evident because God made it evident. Creation is not a vague or indistinct revelation. The message you get from nature is crystal clear, and it's everywhere you look. And furthermore, the universe actually has quite a lot to say about God. A host of His attributes are patently obvious in creation. You see in creation His vast power, His wisdom, His love of beauty and order, and even His loving kindness and His sovereignty. Those are just some samples of divine attributes. Scripture, those are ones that actually Scripture points out and says these things are visible in nature. To cite just one obvious example from Scripture, Jesus said God's loving kindness and His sovereignty can be discerned from the fact that He dresses the lilies in glorious clothing and He knows every movement of every sparrow. Or consider the book of Job. In fact, I think... The second half of the book of Job is one of the most breathtakingly amazing sections in all of Scripture. Job, you know, has suffered unspeakable grief. He's been subjected to a confusing mix of some pretty good and some lots of really bad counsel from his friends, but he has deflected their accusations against him. He has complained bitterly about his circumstances, just as you and I would if we were in his place. And he has questioned and challenged God regarding the reasons why he's suffering. And then when Job has pretty much hit rock bottom in all of his despair, God finally comes on the scene, not with words of comfort and an explanation for Job, but God comes in a whirlwind with a rebuke aimed at Job. So now bear this in mind. God himself had already said this about Job, that there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Job is not a bad guy. Those were God's words of affirmation about him, spoken to the devil about Job in Job 1 verse 8. But when God speaks to Job himself, his words are of a different sort. And the Lord scolds him for thinking too little of God for entertaining thoughts about God that underestimate and miniaturize the Almighty. And by the way, think about this. If God scolded a man like Job for having stunted thoughts about God, what do you think he would say to the rest of us? Anyway, chapters 38 through 41 of Job record the reprimand that he got from the Lord, and it's a catalog of truths that God says are, are visible in nature. He starts out in Job 38, verse 4, "'Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth?' Which is a reference not only to the Lord's omnipotent strength, but also His infinite wisdom. Continuing verse 4, "'Tell me, Job, if you know,' the Lord says, "'if you know understanding, tell me, who set the earth's measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it, or on what were its bases sunk?' 
or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? That's a poetic description of the creation event. When God called everything out of nothing, and the morning stars and the sons of God singing and shouting for joy, those are the angelic creatures who witnessed it. And the Lord's rebuke to Job then goes on for four full chapters, citing a number of things that only God can do, things that are beyond the realm of human power or human comprehension, things the Lord has made that are too wonderful for the human imagination, and things that the Lord knows that are hidden to everything else in nature. For example, he challenges Job with the classic epistemological conundrum, who has given wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Where do you think knowledge comes from? He asks Job that question, designed to cause Job to reflect on the fact that you can't explain intelligence apart from God. He points to animal instinct as proof that knowledge has been placed in the minds of living creatures by an infinitely wiser mind, someone infinitely wiser than the most intelligent human even. Chapter 39, verse 27, is it, he asks Job, is it at your command that the eagle goes on high and raises his nest high? Who taught the eagle to do that? By the time you get to chapter 40, God is still speaking, verse 2, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. You think you're smarter than God? Answer his questions. And there isn't an atheist who has any answers for these questions. In other words, if you think you are entitled to, to question God or doubt Him, just look at everything He made and think again. The point is, God's power and His wisdom are so clearly on display that even a righteous man like Job had no right whatsoever to question God even though Job was candidly in the deepest pit of despair, I have empathy for him. He's there without any explanation of why he's suffering. And even though he's suffering without so much as a single word of comfort or hope from God, he gets this rebuke because it is not his place to subject God to cross-examination or to doubt him or question him. Now, The point of Scripture in this passage is not to magnify Job's guilt. The Bible expressly says, this is the best of men. The point is to magnify the glory of God. That glory fills the universe. It's written in capital letters and bold type for anyone who has eyes to see. And and that is, in fact, the most obvious truth we learn about God from nature, and it's this. He's glorious. Every molecule of the universe unveils and declares God's glory. You see an amazing, majestic display of incomprehensible glory no matter what perspective you look from. The glory of God is on display in vivid, intense, graphic detail no matter where you turn your eyes. You can look in the most powerful telescope at the outer edges of the current technology's ability to see, and what you will observe is breathtaking glory. Or you can look at a microscope at any random drop of pond water, and you'll see glory of a different kind, but it's equally impressive. Take even the ugliest, most grotesque-looking insect and examine it under a powerful lens. 
you can't help but be astonished at the intricacy and ingenuity and, and even the beauty of the way that bug was made and, and designed by a, an intelligence far wiser than mine. The eyes of a common housefly are a thousand times more marvelous than the greatest of human inventions. Humanity has never constructed anything as marvelous and wondrous as the, the eyes of a common housefly. Creation will astonish you whether you view it close up or far away, whether you look at it with a wide-angle lens or a magnifying glass. All of creation is impressive beyond words in every dimension and every detail, and it fairly screams out the glory of its maker. God created all of this out of nothing with just His Word. What is nothing? You can't even conceive of it. You probably think of empty space, but even that is something. Spurgeon said, you have never yet grasped the idea of nothing. The eye can't see it. The eye couldn't look at nothing. It would be blinded. Nothing is a thing which the senses cannot grasp, and yet it is out of this awful nothing that God made the sun and the moons and the stars and all things that are. That is exactly what Scripture says. This vast incredible universe is the work of God, the Creator, and His intention from one end of the universe to the other is to show us some of His glory. All of creation is one massive display of divine glory that no one can possibly overlook. It hits you in the face wherever you turn. A universe full of truth about God is right there all the time, assaulting the human senses with undeniable facts that God wants us to know about Himself. I don't have time to recount uh, uh, even a short catalog of some of the wonders of creation, but there are whole books filled with information about creatures with incredible features that defy the theory that all of these species simply evolved by accident. The point is that Scripture says the truth of creation is obvious, and people are without excuse when they try to suppress that. By the way, the psalmist writes frequently about how God is revealed in creation. I was quoting from Psalm 19 already. The first half of that psalm is an anthem about the glory of God in nature. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The expanse is declaring the works of His hand. Psalm 8 then takes up the same theme in a prayer addressed to the Creator, O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. That's Psalm 8, verse 1, one of David's psalms, as he observes the glory of God in creation, which he did because, you know, he's a shepherd out there on the hills at night. He looks into the stars, observes God's glory and what he sees. He is smitten with a sense of his own unworthiness. He writes, when I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him, and the son of man that you care for him? So the vastness of the heavens makes David feel his own insignificance. Now imagine if David knew what we know about how big the universe is. He was limited to what he could see with the naked eye. We've now got the James Webb Space Telescope that can see further than you could possibly imagine. This thing just went up earlier, well, I think on Christmas Day of 2021, launched into space, and it began sending its first images back to Earth six months later. The first images were released to the public just a few months ago on July 11th of 2022. 
Within weeks, this telescope was sending breathtaking pictures that no one had ever seen in this far into space before. And a couple of weeks ago, some astronomers identified a single star, a little dot in one of those photographs. They said that's actually the most distant star ever seen. They named it Arendelle after a character in a Tolkien novel. And, and they say that it is, get this, 12.9 billion light years away from us. 12.9 billion light years. That's a distance greater than you could possibly imagine, and I can't explain it to you. But it, it's actually nothing compared to the newly discovered galaxies that that telescope can see. These are not just stars and comets, but massive gal- galaxies, some of them bigger than the Milky Way, and they are larger and farther from Earth than anyone had ever pondered before. One of them is a galaxy that is rather ingloriously named CEERS-93316. It needs a better name. Maybe Tolkien can help. But astronomers say that is 35 billion light years away. 35 billion light years away, meaning that if you could travel there at the speed of light, it would take you 35 billion years to get to the outer edge of that galaxy. So if you're planning to go there, pack a lunch. (laughs) The vastness of the universe puts our relative insignificance in perspective, doesn't it? And yet, as David says, the glory of God is revealed within the human creature as well, in a unique and particular way. Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6, "...yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet." Of all the creatures on earth and all the galaxies in the heaven, none gives a more articulate and obvious revelation of God's glory than man, who Scripture tells us was made in the very image of God. And that is the second category of theological truth we can see in creation. Number two, if you're taking notes, the fallen glory of humanity. It's true that humanity bears the stamp of God's likeness, No other creature, not even the highest archangel, was made in the image of God. We see the image of God imprinted on the human soul in humanity's unique sort of moral and spiritual attributes, those things that set us apart from the animals, that we worship, that we have consciences. For example, the human intellect is uniquely capable of self-reflection. We are creative. We are moved by beauty. We speak a variety of complex languages, and our moral instinct, that that innate sense of right and wrong, is unparalleled in the animal kingdom. We have a conscience that declares us guilty when we do wrong, and no other creature manifests anything like the human craving for communion with God. Animals don't practice religion of any kind. I had a beagle that used to act like he felt guilty. But I'm telling you, his conscience was way more defective than mine. (laughs) And yet, it is clear, even from creation, that the human race is fallen and morally worse than any other creature in, in creation. People do evil things intentionally. All people do. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Sin is a plague on humanity, and you can see that 
in the news headlines every day, increasingly so as evil men and imposters proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And furthermore, the apostle says in, in the verse immediately preceding our text, Romans 1.18, fallen men unrighteously suppress the truth. They deny what they see in nature, what they ought to be able to see with their own eyes. They claim not to see it. They try to conceal it from their own consciences, and they intentionally pretend that it isn't even there. But Paul says that's no excuse, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, both His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. So they're without excuse, he says. And notice verse 19, that which is known about God is evident, he says, within them. That is a literal rendering of verse 19. The knowledge of God is within them. It's not just among them or around them. And and in the words of the ESV, it is plain to them. Verse 21, they knew God, which means vital knowledge of God is innate in the human mind. It is imprinted there and implanted there by the Creator Himself. You were born with knowledge already in your mind. Maybe you've never contemplated this, but a totally blank mind would be like a computer without a program. It would have no means of interpreting or cataloging data. So we have to know something in order to make sense of anything. So where does that original knowledge come from? Here's your answer. God put it there. Some rudimentary knowledge is innate, built right into the human heart, and its centerpiece is an awareness of the God who put it there. It's it's not a complete and comprehensive understanding of all truth about God, obviously, but it certainly includes some sense of right and wrong, good and evil, justice and injustice. We all feel that and talk about it. We have different ideas about what it is because humans have so corrupted their value systems. But God puts knowledge, including some knowledge about Himself, in every human heart, Elihu was speaking truth in Job 32, verse 8, when he said, the breath of the Almighty is what gives us understanding. When God breathed the breath of life into Adam, he gave us a basic moral compass, and according to Romans 2.15, a conscience that either accuses or excuses us. In fact, Romans 2.15 expressly says that God's moral law is inscribed in some fashion on every human heart. A set of fundamental spiritual truths was engraved on our souls at creation. Not exhaustive knowledge, but it's enough to remove the excuse of total ignorance, enough to make us aware of God and His glory, and should be enough to set us on the, on the pathway to seeking Him. But there is none who seeks God, sadly. Verse 19, that which is known about God is evident. It is obvious within them. And at the same time, there is this tendency in every human heart to suppress or ignore that knowledge because we're fallen. And in fact, that's the proof that the human race is fallen. The doctrine of original sin, not not the most popular dogma of Christian theology, original sin, but it is the one vital doctrine that is vividly proved by empirical evidence. Everyone sins. We know that. Human history is a story filled with wars and atrocities and monstrous horrors that are the fruit of our fallenness. And all of that is going on around us every day, all the time. We see it. And furthermore, we are conscious 
of our own sins. We feel guilt. We sense our accountability to someone greater than us. We try to suppress those guilt feelings, and some people are amazingly successful at that, but to their own hurt. Suppressing a guilt only makes a person worse, not more well-adjusted. Someone who feels no guilt is basically a psychopath. So we are sufficiently aware of the human dilemma by the light of nature alone. Humanity is a fallen race. Time doesn't permit me to be long-winded about this, so I hope you see the point. But let me move now to the third category of truths that we learn from creation. The order and reality of created things shows us not only the magnificent glory of God and the fallen glory of humanity. Here's category number three. Nature shows us the awful curse of sin. And again, time doesn't permit me to be verbose here, but I don't need to say much about this anyway. There is ample evidence in nature that something has utterly devastated God's creation, especially in the realm of human activity. Anything humanity touches is ruined. Skeptics and scoffers may try to blame God or His absence for anything that goes wrong. You hear it every time there's some catastrophe. Where was God when that happened? Or if God is such a loving and merciful Creator, why did He create viruses and mosquitoes? Why do things break down? Why do people die? Why is this world so full of pain and toil and tragedy if God is good and all-powerful? And Scripture, of course, answers those questions definitively. Creation is cursed because of humanity's sin. That's Genesis 3. But the point is here, the reality of evil and the effects of the curse are perfectly obvious in nature itself. In the words of Romans 8.22, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together. We groan. Human life starts with a cry and ends with a groan. Everyone dies. Everyone experiences deep sorrow. Trouble defines the human condition. Job 5 verse 7, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Something is clearly wrong, and we all know it. We can tell both intuitively from what our consciences tell us and experientially from observing the laws of nature that we can tell that whatever is wrong in this universe has something to do with human sin. Even the materialistic atheists fretting about climate change are certain that whatever's wrong here is humanity's fault. They know it. So even the awful curse of sin is obvious when you look at creation. God's majestic glory, man's fallen glory, sin's awful curse, all of that is loudly proclaimed by the things that are made if you have ears to listen. But on the other hand, the good news, the answer to the human dilemma is revealed only through special revelation. That's why God gave us His Word, the Bible, to show us the way of salvation and redemption from the curse. And then He sent His Son, the ultimate, final, self-revelation of God, Jesus Christ incarnated as a man, in order to verify and fulfill everything Scripture ever promised. That's not just special revelation. Christ is perfect divine revelation. He lived a perfect life. He navigated this cursed world without ever once being defiled by sin that was all around him. And then he died to pay sin's penalty, offering an atonement that is more than sufficient for the sins of everyone who will ever believe. 
And therefore, he offers eternal life in a redeemed universe, a new heaven and new earth, untainted by sin and uncorrupted by the curse, to anyone who will confess his or her fallenness and repent and trust in Christ alone as Lord and Savior. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That is the truth that all nature ultimately is trying to point us to and prompting us to look into. If creation is the foundational truth, then the gospel is the central truth to which all that, all that other truth points, and Christ himself is the pinnacle and incarnation of all truth. And if you have not yet embraced him as the way and the truth and the life, my prayer for you is that God will open your eyes to see and that your entire life and worldview will be transformed by the truth of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do give you glory and praise for all the wonders of creation, realizing that nature itself is here to teach us that you are great and glorious and our poor tongues are inadequate to express worship in any way that truly befits your infinite glory. May we see your glory as it is revealed in Christ, and may we reflect that glory as you conform us to his righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.